Hello everyone, I'm here today with Ryan Bourne. He occupies the R. Evans Shaft Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics at the Cater Institute in Washington, DC. Also a writer for the Daily Telegraph and Conservative Home, and the author of this great new book. He's been busy in lockdown, writing Economics in One Virus, an introduction to the economic reasoning through COVID-19. He's also a Derby County fan, so I'll be ostentatiously drinking from my Nottingham Forest mug throughout. <laughs> Hiya, Ryan. A long-suffering Derby County fan. Thanks for having me on, Jim. It's great to be with you. Um, what did you set out to do with this book? I mean, for all academics in whatever discipline they're in, whether it's humanities or science, the COVID period is going to provide this incredibly fertile period for um, thinking about what's going on. And we've had this kind of perfect experiment and an experiment all over the world because governments and scientists are all doing different things in response to coronavirus. So this unprecedented event, what do you think is going to come out of it in terms of economics and what were you trying to get at when you wrote this book? Well, my job at Cato, as you say, is in the public understanding of economics and the origin story of this book really is I was sat watching CNN one day and watching New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and he came out with those immortal lines that politicians often use where they said kind of it, if these lockdown measures uh, we're taking say just one life I'll be happy and I thought you know I really need to write something about how it risks um, and, and so I set about writing that essay. The next day I was watching television and um, state governors here around the country were dividing businesses up between essential and non-essential businesses. And I thought, you know, I really should write something about the interconnectedness of a modern economy and how one person's non-essential business is another business's essential supplier. And each day that this pandemic went on, really, I just found more and more examples where I thought I could harness this pandemic as a case study for showcasing um, economic ideas. So the book originally started off as... Um, uh, as a you know, 10-page, 16-chapter book, just because this period has produced so much uh, different material for really exhibiting some of the key things about economics. Well, that, that first one you mentioned, the Andrew Cuomo um, quote, is probably the crux of a lot of the big economic debates because uh, we've spent more money in this pandemic than during the global financial crisis or perhaps any, any time since the Second World War in terms of public policy response. And one of the, the measures you, you come up, well, you talk about in the book is the value of a statistical life. And it's obviously an incredibly emotive thing. And everyone listening to this podcast or, or video will have known people have been ill or have even lost their lives during the pandemic. And it's really difficult to think in those terms. But um, how, how do you go about it? Because it is something that we do anyway. Every time we buy life insurance or, or even buy a car, we can make cars almost incredibly perfectly safe. But, you know, there are trade-offs. How, how do you go think about that as an economist? Yeah, well, the way economists usually go about valuing statistical lives is they look at how much populations in various occupations have to be paid to compensate them for the the uplift of mortality risks um, at work, so in dangerous jobs like high-rise construction or mining or whatever. Um, and so if you divide the, um, the kind of collective amount that a group has to be paid um, to compensate them for that risk and divide it by the absolute risk, that gives you the value really of um, 
how much that population collectively has to be compensated for the risk in probabilistic terms of any one person dying. Now, for uh, similar kind of mortality risks from diseases, you can use those measures and as an as an approximation. So I believe that, you know, uh, Kip Vescusi, who's kind of the world-renowned economist on this values um, statistical lies from UK labour market studies at about six million uh, pounds per life. And obviously, then, if you're engaging in public policies that save significant numbers of lives, that implies a massive benefit in health terms through uh, that risk mitigation. The problem is, though, and I would say this is the big caveat and, and kind of Uh, thing you have to think about here. Those values are taken from labour market studies. The problem with COVID-19, of course, is that many of the people worst affected by the virus are actually older people who tend to have very different preferences for how much they're willing to pay to avoid death risks or willing to accept to, to mitigate death risks. And also, you know, they're the populations that don't tend to be part of those labour market studies in the first place. So it's not always clear that those exact values that you get from those studies would be appropriate. Yeah, so incredibly difficult and, and incredibly difficult for politicians even to enter into that debate um, in the public sphere, isn't it? Um, uh, especially when something like COVID was, as you say, impacting elderly demographics more than working age demographics. I, I guess um moves on to the kind of public versus private sphere. So um, Cato Institute is libertarian. Um, I will obviously expect you to some extent to... Um, say that the private sphere had a very important part to play in any successes around COVID um, measures. And I think in the book, you, you say that it was actually private action that was ahead of public action in, in some way. What, what, what is the kind of balance between private and public when it comes to something like a pandemic, which is sort of outside your normal uh, distribution curve of what you'd expect from traditional um, economics? Yeah, and it's an incredibly difficult question. I mean, one thing that I would say is that if individuals think they're um, at risk or their loved ones are at risk from a virus, as we saw when this first hit last spring, they do tend to take very evasive uh, mitigation measures. And I think almost all of all economists that have looked at this in a degree of detail have now found that particularly in the United States, there was an effective voluntary shutdown of the economy before the government mandates came along. Now, of course, when people then begin reassessing their risks, um, it became clear that this was much less of a mortality risk to younger people. Uh, as those perceptions change, people's willingness to engage in certain activity changes. So at that stage, government uh, action binds. There is a fundamental economic problem, though, in this um, pandemic in that, you know, as economists, we usually worry about um, externalities. I, You know, the possibility that my action will affect a third party who um, is not engaged in the the trade or activity that um, I'm engaging in, but I'll affect them adversely in some way. And there's no way of compensating them for the fact that I'm putting them at risk. And in this pandemic, of course, that was um, exacerbated by the fact that we've subsequently realized that this spreads asymptomatically and is airborne as well. So coming to very specific measures to try to um, isolate those people or identify those people who are potentially infectious, particularly if we don't have widespread testing, is incredibly difficult. And for that reason, I think it was almost inevitable that in certain circumstances, it would be the case where you'd need kind of population-wide risk mitigation measures, whether that was mask mandates or 
or more formal shutdowns of certain activity, particularly mass gatherings. Um, beyond that, of course, we have to look at the costs and benefits of each individual regulation. Some of them, I think, are very justified and at certain times, and some of them uh, perhaps not so, particularly as we've learned more about the virus. Okay, and again, with your a bit with your libertarian hat on, um, let's talk about global trade, because one of the things that's come out of this is a bit of vaccine nationalism and the idea that not just it's not just important to have manufacturing of vaccine capability in your own country, because suddenly that might get turned off if they're all being made in the Netherlands or the United States, but maybe, you know, self-sufficiency around food and manufacturing and, and other things, PPE, for instance. Do you think that global trade is going to suffer and, and should it suffer as a result of this in favour of more self-sufficiency? Well, I think it's undoubtedly the case that many private sector actors who perhaps weren't expecting um, disruption from something like a global pandemic will reassess their supply chains, will decide to reshore certain amounts of activity and the like. And that's, you know, that's part of the error correction mechanism that we see within markets every day. Uh, the real question is, will governments go beyond that and kind of mandate a repatriation of certain activities or, or kind of demand that certain things take place within a country's shores? And I think there the economics is um, uh, is much less clear. The reason really, there's a few reasons, but I think the main one is that, of course, in any future catastrophe, we don't know the exact contours of what's going to hit. And so we don't know what types of manufactured goods will be necessary to deal with any uh, future pandemic. And so if you take that to its logical conclusion, you end up um, demanding that we set aside vast amounts of economic resources and capabilities to try and foresee any any you know any future type of threat and if we did really know what the what we'd need in a future pandemic i think that we could stockpile goods we could take out um options uh to set aside some spare capacity in, in certain companies or we could diversify our trade links to try and uh mitigate those those risks of uh of disruption in much cheaper ways. Of course, the other factor is that there's no guarantee that any future pandemic might not affect us more adversely than um, our international suppliers. There were times during this pandemic where uh, uh, kind of the meat supply, uh, meat packing plants and truck production in the United States was really disrupted during COVID uh, because of many workers coming down with the disease um, at that stage, if we'd had diverse supply, diversified uh, supply lines and people had been, uh, you know, had relationship with, where we were easily able to import those goods, um, then consumers would have been less disrupted. As it happens, those industries tend to be quite heavily protected. And so as a result, we saw shortages. So I would just urge some caution here. Of course, we don't know what a, a future pandemic is going to look like. So I think it's highly misguided to to demand that we set aside vast amounts of manufacturing capabilities. And of course, if the pandemic does hit, any future pandemic or catastrophe does hit uh, domestically harder than elsewhere, then repatriating that activity can make you less resilient, not more. Okay. Now, the biggest issue for me in bond markets at the moment is really surrounds the labour market. And, you know, if, if someone had said ex-ante that we're going to have a year with uh, no economic activity or much reduced levels of economic activity, yet the labour market would be as healthy as it is now and wages would be going up and people had 
large degrees of savings in many cases, not not for everyone, surely. But I mean, you give the example in the book of a worker in Massachusetts who low-income worker earning $535 per week. Um, under the old unemployment system in that state, they would have got $257. Um, nowadays, under the kind of emergency unemployment benefits, they get $857. Uh, and, and, you know, to some extent, you can argue that this has protected our economy dramatically and allowed spending and social cohesion and so forth. But now the argument is that people have done so well, in inverted commas, out of unemployment benefit over the last year that they're unwilling to re-enter the workforce. And we're seeing wage inflation um, in many areas of the US economy and difficulties hiring. I mean, what this has been a very big experiment. It's almost a universal basic income experiment in some ways, the furlough schemes and so forth. What, what's your view on this? And we had Joe Biden come out last night, I think, and say that these rising wages that we're seeing aren't a bug, they're a feature of, of the system. What, what's your response to everything that's been going on around the labour market over the last year? Yeah, I think it's a really fascinating story and there's all sorts of moving parts. I think that you know, last year it was kind of a feature, not a bug to to kind of pay people to stay home. There were all sorts of evasive actions that we were taking in, in order to try and mitigate the disease. And a lot of the economic evidence from last year didn't appear to suggest that uh, relative to what would have happened anyway, the $600 um, benefits appeared to have a, a big impact in slowing down people rejoining the labor market, mainly because actually... Um, many people in the US were being recalled to their old employers. And of course, if they don't take up those recall options, they risk losing their benefits um, anyway. And they didn't know how, how long those benefits would be extended for. So you kind of had to, to judge the risk of uh, getting paid more to stay home for a shorter amount of time uh, or decide to go back to work and enjoy the security of longer term employment. I do now think, though, with the reopening of the economy, we're seeing, I mean, the benefits are slightly lower now. It's 300 supplement a week on top of ordinary uh, benefits. But they do appear, there's lots of indicative evidence to suggest that they're slowing down the, the rehiring as the economy really does reopen uh, with the vaccines. And I think that's problematic. Uh, just before the American Rescue Plan was passed, when it became clear that these were going to be uh, a part of that package, uh, job search on Google declined by around 15 uh, percentage points. Um, we are seeing workers in, restu in restaurants and other hospitality industries, their average hours going up pretty dramatically, which is suggestive that, you know, businesses are sweating existing employees more because they're finding it difficult to hire um, other people. And wages in those sectors are going up pretty sharply. I don't just think it's all a question of uh, incentives, though. I think that one underexplored impact of this pandemic is because people have had a year of doing very different things. A lot of people are reassessing um, their careers and reassessing the types of jobs that they want to do. Some people have taken up uh, certain shorter qualifications and retrainings whilst um, they've been out of the labour force. And of course, uh, with regards to students, they've been away from universities for a long time. So the composition of the potential labor force for many of these service industries has changed. And I think one of the things that you're going to see both in the UK and the US in the coming months is uh, some kind of teething problems where we get that reallocation effect, because we don't really know um, how much uh, 
consumers' demands are going to have changed as a result of this pandemic. We don't really know yet um, whether businesses will go back, uh, most businesses will go back to work in the office four or five days per week, or whether we'll see uh, even stickier kind of working from home norms. And those things will really affect both the spatial and industrial composition of the economy. And, and that's why from a kind of libertarian perspective, we need to, when we say return to normal, we shouldn't mean we want to try and shoehorn the economy into the strictures of, of what it was in February 2020. We need to allow markets and experimentation to operate as much as possible, remove barriers to job creation, so we get a kind of new market normal created in line with people's preferences and, um, and you know, and what they want to achieve. So, so to finish up there in that case, what's your gut feel? Is this like, I mean, it's Larry Summers quote in, in, in the book that um, the recovery in US GDP happens every Monday morning as people come back from the weekend. And is that what it's going to feel like that things get back to normal pretty quickly? Or do, or do you think that things have changed dramatically? And, and, and do you fear that perhaps the public realm... Um, has will come to be have a bigger share of you know the, the response in the pandemic of the public sector relative to the private sector and perhaps the battle between labor and capital is swinging more to big government and more powerful labor versus capitalism and small government yeah that's the big unknown question i think there'll be uh, kind of separating it out into different bits i think there will be a long tail from this pandemic i mean um, at the moment in the US, here in DC, we're pretty much open and back to normal. But, um, you know, people aren't going back to, to, to service and hospitality industries in the way that they were before. And we are seeing, you know, people deciding to live in uh, the outskirts of DC rather than within the city centre. And all that stuff will take time to kind of play out. Um, I do think in line with the work of kind of Robert Higgs and um, other great economists and historians, crises like this always tend to expand the size and scope of government, even though it will fall back as the emergency um, support is withdrawn. It never tends to fall back to the level it was beforehand. Um, and the effects of that will only play out kind of in the, in the longer term. Personally, I believe that a, a state sector um, occupying a bigger share of the economy tends to kind of retard economic activity in the longer term, particularly as you need kind of higher marginal tax rates in many cases to ultimately finance that, not that anybody's interested in financing um, spending at the moment. But of course, there's also going to be longer term impacts of this pandemic that are not going to show up for a very long period. None of us really know as yet what the human capital impacts will be in the longer term of a lot of children in effect, missing a year of schooling in many circumstances. And I think another interesting question uh, that economists are just starting to think about is how living through this crisis will affect our risk tolerance in terms of entrepreneurialism. Because you could imagine a lot of people who perhaps two years ago might have been willing to move into sectors and do innovative things in leisure, hospitality, entertainment, all these industries, they probably could have never conceived that um, that those industries had the potential to be shuttered um, uh, for a year by by government dictat. And I think as that reassessment of these tail end risks filters through the economy, 
Um, it remains to be seen, you know, what the longer term impact will be on our growth potential. Of course, it's possible that I'm completely wrong on that and that people, we could, you know, you could have a roaring 20s where everybody wants to go out and make up for the fact that we've been shuttered at home for a year, but we just don't know as yet. Uh, that, that's a fascinating point because um, in, in the UK, for instance, people who were self-employed found, found it very difficult to get government support, whereas people um, who were in employment got the furlough scheme and maybe you know the incentives to, to start your own business will be reduced as a result of that if people think that we might have another pandemic in future years. So, yeah, so much to think about. Um, it's a really, really fascinating, very, very timely book. Well done for getting it written in the midst of this uh, horrible year that we've had. And thanks very much for joining us today, Ryan.